And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were there with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear some people among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. As such, people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed, yet... Do not regard them as an enemy, but warm them as you would a fellow believer. Uh, so uh, this will be our last week in uh, letters to Thessalonica. And I uh, have to say I'm going to miss them. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a tough um, uh, thing to preach through in so many ways because on, on one hand, it's uh, a, you know, a letter that's written in the context of a little bit of a of a crisis, I, I you know think to think about uh, going uh, back to uh, the worst email in your outbox that you've ever sent to someone in the midst of a crisis at work, and imagining uh, what exactly the the tone and or content of that email would look like. And in some senses, Thessalonica represents a kind of crisis intervention for Paul. And second of all, you know, look, it's like if you're honest about yourself, especially if you're honest about yourself as a as a preacher, I've got like three shticks. You know, my my three basic shticks are uh, holy and sacred. Uh, we should preference the holy over the institutional sense of the sacred. Uh, that uh, the point of, uh, of, of the resurrection is to remake the world and specifically in terms of justice. And then the third one that I love to do and I've preached whole series on in one way or another is this idea that what happens in the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that fundamentally breaks the economy of retribution that says that uh, we owe and are owed uh, as the primary moral orientation of the universe and that Jesus says to each one of us, uh, that economy no longer inheres, I am here to uh, give a kind of love that is unconditional. And honestly, uh, I think that, that those, those, those shticks are perfectly consistent with what is written in this letter, but the difficult thing about preaching through these two letters is uh, it, they've been applied to say almost exactly the opposite thing of what they intend oftentimes. And as the, as, the, as the best example of that, I'll point out that the verse that we have today is one of only two verses in the Bible that was the subject of extended biblical exegesis by none less than Joseph Stalin himself, who found in this a vision for his understanding of uh, what, uh, what perfect communism ought to look like. Because for him, the point was, uh, if you could work, you have to do it in order to serve the state and serve the good of everybody. And uh, that's the thing that would allow us to allocate goods in a way that helped fix the world. 
It's a difficult set of books in almost every sense because so often uh, what is taken as a kind of political injunction to a specific church at a specific point in time can be applied to and, uh, and formatted in a way that fundamentally deviates from what it is that we're being told in the scripture. And so it's tough. It's going to create these kind of tough interpretive moments. And as always, I'm going to try and at least be, be as faithful to the text as I, as I possibly can in doing that. So to close out, uh, we're looking at a specific message that is given to a church that is under duress. In both of these letters, there's one basic message. The message is, stick to it. We're going we're gonna to see the world made right. To a community that's facing pressure internally and externally, uh, you know, a community that's facing, you know, the internal pressure is these folks in, in, in Thessalonica, especially believers in Thessalonica, were, were, uh, were afraid that they believed that the return of Christ was imminent, and it had not been quite as quick as they thought. It was at least long enough to get a cycle of two letters back and forth, but actually longer than that. They're in the midst of some fairly difficult social circumstances, and some of their friends and family have started to die. And, well, the, one of the internal pressures in this church is that people uh, over time had lost the kind of revolutionary zeal of being a, uh, being a Christian, and they were starting to filter back into some of the habits and practices of the world. You know, do I swear the oath to that emperor? And more importantly, you know, either is Jesus going to hurry it up and get to the the, the get coming back, or as we talked about last week, some folks who even said he's probably already come back and we were just, you know, a remnant that was left behind. So this is a, this is a community for whom there's significant internal pressure, and of course there's all kinds of external pressure. External pressure to, you know, uh, swear the oath to the, to the emperor and to, uh, to uh, you know, try and make yourself aligned with Rome sufficiently. So Paul has this one basic message to them that he says twice. You know, stick to it, we're going to see the world made right. And the, the point he makes in both these letters is this. You can mirror the worst practices of the people who are oppressing you, or you can do something different. You can uh, try and ignore the evil in the world. We called this a couple of weeks ago the Dionysian option, drink your sorrows away and don't worry about uh, whether or not suffering is justifiable. Just try not to suffer. Or you can kind of take this Roman option. You can organize your world so intensely with so much uh, micromanagement of yourself and the people around you that you can try and, uh, you know, push away any sense of, I don't know, randomness or chaos or whatever. What Paul's saying, for the people of God, our option is not to give up on uh, thinking about a world that is made uh, more just. Our option is not to take the option of, of, uh, of drinking ourselves into a stupor instead of engaging the suffering of the world. And it's not an option for us to try and manage the business out of the world to get it to align with our preferences. We can't ignore uh, what, is, what is wrong in the world. We can't uh, uh, lose patience in the coming of Jesus. We can't take this Dionysian option to drink away our sorrows. We can't take the Roman option to micromanage everything. And, and what we are left with and what Paul is telling this community is that instead of understanding the way you live your life as a being about your interests and your preferences, you need to commit yourself to working towards the kingdom of God. And that's, that's the basic message here. So, you know, in the context of, 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 uh, of working out this message, Paul, you know, talks a little bit about the timing of the second coming. There's, a, there's various talk about what the apocalypse uh, 
uh, might look like. But, you know, for as much as that's served as the main basis for interpreting these books for most people, my sense of it is that Paul says, look, this is not about the details of the end of time. What this is about is how we respond to contexts where we're under duress, where we're under stress, and where we feel like we're a little bit hopeless in, uh, in, in, in waiting on and relying on and putting our faith in and, and giving our hearts to Jesus. That, that's the place where we feel hopeless. We either feel hopeless because we see suffering, just like the Dionysians did, and said, you know what, this is never going to get any better. This is never going to be fixed. The best thing for us to do is just kind of numb ourselves. Or we can say, hey, look, the world is terrible and Jesus isn't exactly getting it uh, as quick as, as we imagined it ought to do. So let's throw ourselves into as quick as possible fixing things. We can be pacifists or activists, I guess, is one way of saying it. And what Paul says to both is that we need to stop and we need to give our hearts, our intentions, our motivations to Jesus. Because stick to it, we're going to see the world made right. So in a weird way, you know, Thessalonians has these these, these two beautiful, uh, you know, uh, messages that are adorned with all these really interesting historical theological controversies. And the kind of the puzzler for me in all of this is I don't understand at first why Paul is finishing these two beautiful letters by essentially uh, giving a message that I think we could find from uh, the great scholar Jeffrey Lebowski. Uh, who, who says something along the lines of, the bums will always lose. Why is it that Paul is closing this letter to the people in the church in Thessalonica by talking about the idea that we have responsibilities to work? Why is it that he finishes this defense of what kingdom ethics look like by saying you have to work to eat? Why is it that this is the thing that Paul concludes the, uh, the, the, the two letters with? So to understand why and to understand how this fits in the, in the larger scheme of both letters and how it's an affirmation of this method, message, stick to it, we're going to see the world change. We've got to look at the text fairly closely. So we'll start at verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer, believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you have received from us. Okay, so the Greek here for this term, idle and disruptive, what do the other translations folks have? Anybody got one that's not idle and disruptive? What, how do they describe the, the uh, believers? Living in idleness is not according to the tradition that they received from us. Okay, living in idleness. Anybody else? Walking in idleness. Walking in idleness, yeah. It's uh, the word uh, peripatetos. is uh, the same word that we get peripatetic from. So the Greek word there is... Ataktos. Now it comes from this older Greek word, tasso. And, and tasso meant something like to put in order. So Paul is talking about when it says idle and disruptive, neither of them are particularly good translations, in, in my opinion, because what Paul's saying is there are people in this context who are disordered. And it, the word ataktos, the most common kind of colloquial usage of it, at the time, as if you were looking at a formation of soldiers marching. And you'd say, oh, that one's a taktos. That one is kind of not marching in terms of, uh, of uniformity. Now, here's the thing. So Paul is saying uh, that uh, there, there is some sense of uh, order and disorder that is one of the questions that we have to ask about how a person 
relates to the church. And here he's criticizing folks who are disorderly, that are not kind of doing the, uh, the, the things that the church calls them to do. And so this is a really difficult question in terms of how we think about our Christian faith. What does it mean for us to be called to be orderly in the context of church? I mean, some examples are very obvious, but other examples are tougher. What, 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 are we called to conformity with each other? Are we called to, uh, to, to a number of folks in this room, have, in fact, in the context of uh, their faith history, have been, have been directly called disorderly for, you know, uh, bucking the things that happen in, in, in a church. Now, I've been, I thought a lot about how to think about this idea of octoctos. What does it mean when Paul says that don't uh, affiliate with those who are disorderly? And is that about conformity? And I kind of think about it on two sides. On the first side, uh, little Annabeth was like, I don't know, probably four years old. And I, I went to pick her up at uh, vacation Bible school that she was attending. And the exercise that they asked little Annabeth and all the kids there to do is that they had the kids, uh, they were blindfolded and they had to put their hand on a kid in front of them and they had to like wander in this line. And the, the, the thing that they were learning was, hey, follow the person in front of you. And so little Annabeth got a little bit distracted and she uh, kind of popped out a line. And, you know, of, of the times that I've thought about jumping in and saying, uh, don't say that to my kid, uh, one of the VBS teachers pulled her aside and said, Annabeth, what we're learning in the church is that you always have to follow the leadership in front of you. That it's important for you to conform to their expectations. And it's important for you to not break out of that sense of order. And I was just like, I don't know, it doesn't feel to me like what the gospel is calling for here is, is conformity. So, you know, uh, what, is, what is Paul asking for? Well, I thought more about this idea of atoktos, and one of the things that's interesting about it, as, as presented here, is that, uh, as I understand it, Paul is saying that what constitutes order is not conformity, but rather what constitutes order, as he says later, and I'll talk about it more as we work through it, is aligning ourselves with the name of, and with the motivations of, and with the goals that are manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. That what we are called to be marching to or ordered with is the person, example, and the, the, the history and the, the, the actual uh, personal savior, Jesus Christ, that our order is in putting our focus on and in understanding everything that we do to be about relentlessly following what it is that it's the will of God. What's interesting about that reading to me is this, that what Paul's saying here is that what if there is ever any other principle of order that demands us to have a different motivation or a different focus, that principle of order, any principle of order that takes the place of Jesus Christ is in and of itself a kind of disorder. Paul's saying that for us to march in the same direction is not to have uh, unbreakable conformity with, uh, with, with those around us is not to say uh, we have to follow the rules and if you don't follow the rules, you're in big trouble for being a troublemaker. What Paul is saying is that a body of Christ which is oriented towards the mission of Christ and doing the work of establishing Christ's kingdom, that is the thing that makes us ordered. 
that our eyes, our hearts, and minds are focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And any principle outside of that focus is in itself a principle of disorder. So what does Paul say we should do if we are uh, around these folks who are kind of disordered? The Greek is beautiful here. It literally says, in the name of remaining under Christ, we should not keep away from those people, as the translation I read to open with says, but the Greek word there is stelestai, and it's this fascinating word. It's a gorgeous word, in fact. It's one of the best kind of uh, uses of, I don't know, literary irony and juxtaposition that uh, I can think of in, in Paul's corpus. This world, word, stelestai, means two things. First of all, you can use that word to say, I am aligning myself with something. Stelestai is putting in place of, or also a kind of ordering. And it means, at the same time, uh, and is used in different contexts as withdrawal. Ordering and withdrawal, the same basic sides of, of this word. What Paul is saying here is this. It's not our job to demonize folks who don't necessarily align with the expectations that we have about how we ought to run the church, but that like using that example of a soldier in a formation, our goal is to say that the principle that unites us is that we are all organized around the end goal of seeking Jesus' face and establishing Jesus' kingdom. And any principle outside of trying to advance Jesus' face and seek Jesus' kingdom is a principle that disorders us. In fact, any rule or principle that we might use for our communal life, for our best ways of living, anything that we might suggest that is about anything other than focusing on the face of Jesus puts us back in a kind of disorder. So, you know, this word, stelesi, is only used two times in the New Testament, and it does suggest this kind of beautiful dance that a community has to do where we are big enough and broad enough to encompass a wide range of different practices, motivations, a wide range of different ways of being, and simultaneously we are focused enough on the person and face of Jesus that that common focus brings us to a kind of order that is grown from his love. It's the hardest thing about a church because it can't simply be uh, mandated uh, in terms of rules. It can't be simply about tradition, but it also uh, can't ignore the idea of order that we have to focus on and align ourselves with Jesus and withdraw from any kind of focus which is different. Now, here's the thing. I, this is the type of thing where even, you know, you hear things like this. I hear things like this sometimes. And I'm like, it's so abstract and difficult to see exactly what it would look like in practice. What is, what is Paul talking about here? Okay, so here's the specific practice, I think. Why is it that when you're talking about being ordered around Christ and then like this kind of weird withdraw from or align yourself in a way that puts you back on Christ and not with the, the people who might distract you, why is it that he's ta- when he's talking about a principle that is so crucial to uh, how we think about spiritual life that he drills in directly on eating? Like immediately jumps to, okay, the best uh, example of this is you have to work to eat. So he says in seven, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this uh, not because uh, we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a rule or a model. Okay, so what in the 
what is he talking about? So here, there are some folks who are orderly. There are some folks that are disorderly. And he's generally talking about aligning ourselves with or maximizing our focus on Jesus. And, you know, you, we know some of the things that were kind of bumping around in the community. Some people thought Jesus may have already come. Some people thought that there was a much longer delay. Uh, and there's this common reading of this passage that says something like this. A ton of people had quit work because they thought Jesus was coming super soon. And because they'd quit work, they didn't really have the money to feed themselves. And so they were kind of running to the church's agape feast and using that as a means of, of supporting themselves and of feeding themselves. And so Paul here is talking directly about how a Christian community preserves its resources by demanding some kind of work from the people that are in it. And so Paul's kind of doing a defensive thing here that says, look, in order to sustain our community, we have to have essentially a work requirement for people to go to the agape feast. It's, it's reasonable, but it also is in some sense totally wrong ethically. right? Because part of the idea of agape is that uh, even though there may be real constraints on it, that we're, we're taught to love and to give unconditionally. Uh, and, and we're taught to see everything that we do as ordered towards the kingdom and everything that we do as, uh, as, as being about sustaining and building up one another. And, and of course, there are real financial pressures there uh, that needed to, to underwrite the, uh, the agape feast and to make it keep happening. But it just doesn't seem like the kind of uh, thing that Paul would end with. I think it's probably right that there uh, were some financial pressures that the church were under. And of course, it was better for people to, uh, to work than not. But there's this other, like, strange possibility going on there. And it, it comes from this. So 11, 12, and 13. Uh, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. As such, people we command and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, uh, never tire of, what, uh, of, of, what, of doing what is good. Okay, so... There's that weird thing in 10, verse 10 above it. For when we were with you, we gave you this rule. No one is unwilling to, who is unwilling to work uh, ought to eat. And there's this strange talk about busybodies in uh, the following passages, 14 or 15. So I kind of dug in on what exactly might Paul have been talking about when he talked about busy and busybodies. And here's the thing. There's a word for busybody. That word is ergazomenos. And it's a word for a person who is a worker. So, you know, we know Thessalonica is poor. We know that there was likely a a famine recently. We know that resources were tight. And we know that in both letters, Paul makes this point out of not being committed to or indebted to anyone other than Christ. So there's this practice that in the ancient world, folks would have entered into if they weren't able to feed themselves. And it was a practice called ergozomenos. You'd become a worker. And what that means is that you would put it, if you could not work in order to pay your bills or to feed yourself, you might enter into what we now call nowadays a client-patron relationship. Instead of getting a salary, you'd essentially become a worker for a person. You'd do the things that that person asked you to do. And in exchange, that person would take care of your basic subsistence needs. The name for that kind of relationship is uh, also translated as busybody. I think what's going on here is that Paul is talking about a community where there are a ton of people 
who were unable to work, some because they didn't want to work because they expected the imminent second coming, some because they were excluded from working because of their commitment to the church. And I think they'd entered into all these patron and client worker relationships with people outside the church. So instead of working to eat, they were out running errands for rich Roman folks as they sat around and waited for the second coming. The issue then I think that Paul is talking about is not whether someone is you know, abusing the privilege of the agape meal. I think what Paul's talking about is he is instructing folks while they're waiting for the second coming to work if they can. Because in work lies a principle of independence. If you were in this patron-client relationship and you said, look, I'm not going to get a job, I'm going to wait around for the second coming and until then I'm going to get my bread by doing some stuff for rich Roman folk, you would be in a situation where your focus was completely divided because you had to not only please the community and the folks around you, but you had to please your Roman master. When Paul says those who should Uh, those who eat should work, I believe what he's saying is, is that the biggest risk for Christian communities is not that the agape feast might be overwhelmed. In most instances, we believe it's great. If there is huge demands on our ability to eat together, we believe that God will provide in one way or another. We believe that that is the essence of the kingdom. I think the biggest risk for, uh, for the Christian communities is not persecution is not being overburdened. The biggest risk that Paul is most worried about is dilution of focus. The biggest risk that he's worried about is as we spend time, you know, in the case of Thessalonica, waiting around for the second coming and figuring out ways to make it that folks might get through the day by entering into these patron-client relationships, that over time, that initial revolutionary zeal that folks had for the work of the kingdom had essentially started to be diluted as they started to take on more and more and more commitments that aligned them with the world outside the church. And so Paul says to those folks, if you can work, you should, and those who eat and have the ability to do it ought to work. But the principle here is not to say stop being lazy. The principle here is to say it is the goal of the Christian to make themselves as, uh, as stable and as independent as possible because that is the primary way that we can organize our lives to focus completely on the person and mission of Jesus Christ. That's what he's really saying here. He's saying, Avoid the kind of ties and or dependencies that might make it difficult for you to exercise a mission to the kingdom. And the best proof of this is to look at verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. Pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence that you are doing and will continue to do the things that we command. The whole point, I think, that gets buried if we don't think about the context here is this is not Paul griping about lazy people. This is Paul saying that the central purpose of the church is not only to provide a place or a home for us, the central purpose of the church is for us to continue building God's kingdom and bringing God's love and perseverance into the and persevering uh, for the sake of uh, uh, building it and making it as much of a reality as we can. This is not 
a passage about measurement or paying for just desserts. This is not about Paul getting mad at freeloaders. This is Paul saying to each one of us that the difficult thing in living in the time between the resurrection and the second coming is that we will live lives that are always tied between multiple masters and multiple demands. And the difficult thing that every Christian must do is to say, I know that I have to fulfill all kinds of other responsibilities to family, to work, to uh, being a good citizen of the community, to whatever it is that I am tied to. But Paul would like us to the greatest extent possible to centralize our focus on advancing the kingdom by doing what it, it takes and what makes it possible for us to focus like a laser beam on being his face and on being his hands and feet to a broken world. Amen. Questions, talk, discussion?